0: it me. You know, last week I took off my jacket and rolled up my sleeves and somebody said, you look like you were getting ready to hit somebody. And I said, you know, or preach. Um, sometimes I'm not sure which way to go. You know, should I preach? Should I hit somebody? It's just, it's a hard call some days. So that's right. Hit them with the word. So put them both together. There you go. Terry's bailing me out down here. Revelation chapter 1, we're doing verses 4 through 6 today, and uh, we're discovering that even though, uh, especially at the beginning, we're taking very short chunks of Scripture, there's a ton of stuff in there. There's lots and lots to learn. So if you would turn in your Bibles or look on in your outline, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, listen carefully carefully as this is the Word of God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we continue to make our way through Revelation, will you please help us? We think we know who you are and we think we know what you have done, but our understanding is so limited and feeble. So, Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Help us to understand what you have done and what you are doing for us right now. We want to be among those who are blessed for having spent time in this great and wonderful book. Help us to meet you in this book. Help us to see your son in its words. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. How many of you have seen the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, the movies? Oh, a fair number, most of you. How many of you have read all the books? All the way through. Okay, good. So about twice as many people have seen the movies as the books, as have read the books. So for years, those stories of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth were contained in that book trilogy, The Lord of the Rings book trilogy. And it was enjoyed by a large number of people who loved those stories with a passion. But since that trilogy exploded from the books into blockbuster Hollywood movies, millions have become enthusiastic fans. And the engaging fantasy world of Tolkien's Middle Earth, the unique characters, the epic battles, the spiritual themes that run through the stories, there are so many layers that have been blended into an experience that has just magnetized millions of people. And it's a great story, but for many, this is a story that seems to say something, something really important. Tolkien, the uh, author of The Lord of the Rings, was a man of deep Christian faith, and that faith helped to shape the provocative spiritual themes that many find uh, in the trilogy, particularly in the finale, The Return of the King. Uh, There is a ring, and there is a king. And there, somewhere tied to both, are many of us. See, at the center of the Lord of the Rings is the ring. It's a a gold ring that many want to possess, no matter what the cost. And the dark secret of owning the ring and its power is that power ultimately comes to own you. And it's called by one of its owners, the Precious. Did you see in our our songs we sang earlier? It was one of the descriptions of Jesus that we sang. But in calling it the precious, he's demonstrating the ring's perverse value uh, to the one who has it. You can't let go of it even when it begins to destroy you as it always does. And that image suggests a disturbing reality about our lives here on the real earth. There are life pursuits that we believe will fulfill us and will answer our questions and give us the spiritual power that the human soul is hungry for. And we want the power of whatever ring we feel compelled to pursue. Someone who will love us. Something we define as success. Something that will relieve our pain. Something that will make us feel significant. We all have our precious. And sadly, our precious ends up being less than what we had hoped for, but often something that we can't let go of. Two, worlds, two words ultimately define the essence of all of our uh, precious pursuits. My way. The Bible would call it sin. Time after time, the road that's marked my way has turned out to be a dead-end street, hasn't it? And all too often, the ring that we have selfishly fought for has ended up hurting us and hurting those we love. And that's the point at which the return of the king intersects the life of the real king as the one uh, described in Revelation 19.15 as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one in whose honor we stand when we hear the Hallelujah Chorus. The battles of Tolkien's Middle Earth culminate with the return and victory of a liberating king named Aragorn. The battles of real earth culminate with the return and victory of the king of all kings, whose name is Jesus. And the same book of the Bible that shows Jesus as this king of kings says of him in Revelation 1-5, part of our passage today, he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The king died for you because you grabbed the ring of a self-run life, not realizing the ring will ultimately cost you everything. But heaven's king loves you so much, he paid that price for you on the cross. His ultimate victory came three days later when he walked out of the grave. And the life or death choice before you is whether you will continue to grasp that life-sapping ring or if you'll release the ring so that you can follow your king. And the day you say, Jesus, you died for me, I'm yours is the day the king of all kings moves into your life and does with it what you could never do on your own. The rightful king of your life is coming to you today because for Jesus, you are the precious. And Jesus is the king who has never lost a battle and you need him. And so today, we're going to focus in on a few important verses that teach us about the king you need. So let's turn in our text, Revelation 1, starting at verse 4, and let's look at who God is. Who God is. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is... And who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And before we get started, I want to remind you of something I said last week, and that is, I think, more than any series I've ever preached, it's important for you to read the text in advance several times. And as you read the text, as we go through Revelation, there's two questions that you need to ask of the text. What jumps out at me here and what puzzles me here? And then as we go through the text, we're gonna try to answer those questions. So let's start at the beginning and look at the greeting. There's a greeting there, and as we turn to the first part of our text, we have before us the historical setting in which Christ's testimony is revealed to John. John's letter is addressed to seven specific churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And this means that Revelation is not dealing with abstract principles or timeless truths like Aesop's fables. But rather, this book is written to seven actual Christian congregations, each one struggling with real evil and persecution at the hands of a pagan empire, or they're struggling with heresy and false teaching that's arising from within. And the struggle faced by these particular churches is indicative of the struggle uh, that Christ church will face throughout uh, this present age until the bridegroom, Jesus, comes back for the bride, the church, at the end of the age. And as is typical of such greetings throughout the New Testament, the greeting, grace to you and peace, is given in the name of the Trinity. It's given in the name of the Trinity. We see here in verse 4 this Trinitarian blessing, this triune blessing of grace and peace from God. This comes from the God who is, that's right now, the God who was, that's past tense, and the God who is to come, that's future tense. And God is God the Father. And then the seven spirits, or the sevenfold uh, spirit, as some versions have. A reference to the perfect Holy Spirit. Seven is a number of perfection or completeness. And then there's a mention of Jesus Christ. We see his death, the faithful witness, his resurrection, the firstborn of the dead, and his ascension to the right hand of God where he rules and reigns and the ruler of kings on earth. And let's look at all these individually. Alluding to the divine name uh, first, we see that in Exodus 3.14. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, you remember the story Moses is walking along, there's a burning bush, it doesn't get consumed, it keeps burning, and he says, well, that doesn't look normal. And he goes closer and he hears a voice, says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And so God speaks to him and really commissions him, uh, Moses, to be the leader of his people Israel. And uh, at one point, Moses says to God, well, who should I tell him is sending me? We pick up Exodus 3:14. God said to Moses, "I am who I am." And he said, "Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you." Some would translate I am I am, I am who I am as I am who always was. I am that which has always existed. It's going to actually That phrase translates one word. It's one of the most difficult words to translate into English from Hebrew because it's God's name. And John is telling us here in Revelation 1 that God is without beginning or end. He's the Lord of the past, the present, and the future. The Trinitarian theology of Revelation becomes very apparent when John refers not only to the eternal God but to the seven spirits before his throne, which is almost certainly a reference to the Holy Spirit. The number seven always signifies completion and perfection in this book. And since these seven spirits are said to participate in extending grace and peace to believers, this can't be a reference to another creature or even to an angelic being. And the key here, and some of you uh, caught this, we're in Sunday school this morning, Uh, we talked about this, but as with most of symbolic language in Revelation, the key is found in the Old Testament. There's very, new, a very little new language in Revelation. It's almost always drawing from the Old Testament. And in Zechariah chapter 4, we read about the Holy Spirit. It says, And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And the Lord's Spirit is depicted by Zechariah in his sevenfold fullness or perfection. And that same language appears in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So in the opening chapters of Revelation, the seven spirits are connected to the seven lampstands, symbolic of God's presence in the seven churches that are mentioned here. And this explains why these churches are effective witnesses to the world and why that witness ends if the lampstand is removed. The churches are only effective when the lamps stand, when the presence of God is there among them. If God's presence is removed from them, they cease to be an effective church. You may also explain why the Holy Spirit is mentioned before Jesus here in John's greeting. However, the central role of Jesus is made plain in what immediately follows. It is Jesus whose testimony is given in this vision, and his testimony is true because, quote, Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus alone is the one who has conquered death. Jesus alone is the one who bears witness in this vision. It's significant for John's readers because of the fact that when Jesus dies on the cross, his testimony about being the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom of God seemed to come to nothing and to lose all its meaning. After all, a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. And yet this same Jesus who died on Calvary also rose again from the dead and is now exalted on high where he has taken his rightful place at the right hand of God as the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And since the exalted Christ rules over all kings, his rule extends to the current emperor of Rome, even if Caesar refuses to acknowledge it. And the knowledge of this would have been very comforting to those Christians who lived under the oppressive thumb of that pagan empire, put thousands and thousands of believers to death. For one day, even Caesar will, on bended knee, confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so today, the knowledge of this is very comforting to those Christians who live under the oppressive thumb of the pagan empires of today, which more than ever are putting thousands of believers to death. And one day, even those despots and dictators will, on bended knee, confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so with his thoughts turned to the triune God, And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The Apostle John bursts forth in a doxology that focuses on what God does. The second part of verse 4, what God does. See, in those other verses, John called our attention to Christ's office of prophet and king. And now he's reminding us of Christ's priestly office. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We see here what Christ has already done. He's died, rose again. He's freed us from our sins. He's made us a kingdom priest to uh, his God and Father. And we see what Christ will do. He will come again and every eye will see him. And we see what Christ is doing now. He loves us. Throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see this emphasis on the work of Christ, past, present, and future, Just more evidence that this book is meant for all Christians of all times and places. Now, the text says, to him who loves us. I had written down, this is almost the only time that the New Testament says Christ loves us, present tense. I couldn't find another one. And uh, my buddy Phil quickly did a search and came back and said, well, that's because there isn't another one. So I feel better about saying that now. The unique value of our text is that it's telling us that Christ loves us right now. Think of other passages, Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, past tense. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, past tense. Christ proved his love once and for all at the cross. It's the bedrock of our lives. But our text here says... That Christ also loves us this very second. And who's writing these words? The Apostle John in a Roman prison camp on an island far from home. He's the last of the surviving apostles. Most had died under persecution, and John knew of the beheadings and the torture. And here at the end of the first century, what is his basic assessment of life? Christ loves us. He sees it in that very nanosecond of experience that we call right now. No matter what we're experiencing, no matter what the chemicals in our brain are telling us, here is the deepest truth of our lives— Christ loves us. You will not understand this book if you don't get those three words. It's the only time in the New Testament where we see He who loves us, present tense, right now, this minute, this second. And apparently it doesn't matter what's going on in our lives. If it's true for John in a prison camp on an island, it's true for you, regardless of where you're at or what's going on. And then he goes on and says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Our sins are the basic, if not always, the immediate cause of all of our other problems. And we rarely think that way. But the gospel redefines relevance. According to the gospel, here's the most urgent question that each one of us can ask. You know, what do do I deserve living here in a world I didn't create, breathing someone else's air, eating someone else's food, walking through someone else's property, interacting with people who belong to someone else, living in someone else's world? One word confronts me, accountability. I don't answer to myself alone. I don't even give a final account to the people closest to me. I'm accountable to God. And the fact is, my life doesn't stand up to very close scrutiny. And there's nothing I can do to change my record. So the most urgent question for every one of us is, how can I get free from the guilt that I myself have set in motion? Hear the gospel again. Christ loves bad people who have no excuse for their fifth-rate lives. And how does He love people like us? Not in some general sentimental way, but in the most relevant way. He has freed us from our sins by His blood. What does that mean? It means that at the cross... Jesus accepted accountability for us. He took our place and answered for our guilt. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the cross, God disconnected what we deserve from what we get. We deserve hell. We get heaven. We deserve rejection. We get acceptance. We deserve exposure and shame. We get covering and honor. And at what cost to us? Nothing. But at what cost to him? His very blood. This is how Christ frees people. And there's nothing you can do about it but marvel at it and enjoy it every day. Don't tell yourself that you don't deserve it and therefore you can't accept it. What you deserve is not the point. You got to get past that way of thinking. You have to understand that at the heart of the universe, there is a love too great to be limited to what you deserve. And what you must know is that Christ longs for you to enter into freedom and confidence before God because he deserves that accomplishment. And the way you thank him is not to try to compensate for your failings, not to uh, you know go out and try harder and do more. Rich is going to preach over the next uh, six months when he preaches on the five solas, the great statements of faith for the Reformation. And sola bootstraps is not one of them. (laughs) You know, by our bootstraps alone. You're not to try to lift yourself up by your bootstraps, but to enjoy his success, to enjoy what he's done, to revel in what he deserves. That's how you glorify him. And then he goes on, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. And if that language sounds familiar, it should, because it appears numerous times in the Bible. You've read it in Exodus 19. God says to ancient Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember, in the book of Exodus, the priesthood was limited to certain individuals from the tribe of Levi. And that's because God insisted that the priests be holy men set apart for his service alone. Not only must they come from the tribe of Levi, but they also can't have any physical defects. So like most of us are out of the running. They can't marry women God disapproves of. Most of us are good there. And they're set apart in an elaborate ceremony that involves being bathed in water and anointed with oil and blood. And they wore special garments and special laws govern their lives. And in every way, the priest demonstrated the fact that they're set apart and therefore holy to the Lord. And the Levites were in charge of the sanctuary. And during the wilderness years of Israel's wanderings, they carried the tent and its furnishings from place to place. And they're responsible to guard God's sanctuary and to teach the people the law and to lead the worshipers in praising God. And since only a holy priesthood could approach God's altar and be acceptable to serve God, uh, you know, they had to be dressed properly properly. If the priests weren't dressed properly, if they didn't wash properly, if they tried to serve while unclean, they're in danger of being struck dead. And if the Levites were careless with the tabernacle furnishings, they too might die. In Exodus 28, we see the high priest wore a golden plate at the front of his turban uh, on which was the inscription, Holiness to the Lord. And he dared not do anything that would violate that inscription. He could be serving in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and still be in danger of death. In fact, church history said they would tie a rope around his ankle and he had to wear bells so that they could hear him moving around. And when you stopped hearing the bells, that was a bad sign. It means he did something and he's probably dead. But they had the rope around his ankle so they could pull him out. I'm not making any of this stuff up. You read it for yourself. But what does this tell us? It tells us the priesthood is serious business to God. And now we're told we're being made into priests to his God and Father. Every true believer in Jesus Christ is a priest of God with the privilege of offering spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, which was our responsive reading this morning. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the Old Testament, God's people had a priesthood. In the New Testament, God's people are a priesthood. Why? Because through faith in Christ, we've been washed, 1 Corinthians 6. We've been clothed in his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5. We've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, 1 John 2. And we've been given access into his presence, Hebrews 10. And therefore, we're allowed that intimate access to God, which has been limited to Israel's priests. Furthermore, we're now free to participate in that worship of God, which is acceptable not on the basis of the blood of goats and bulls, but on the basis of the priestly work of Christ who has freed us from our sins by his blood. And what we see clearly in this first section of Revelation chapter 1 is that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He brings the revelation to us as we saw last week in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, he is our prophet. He is our priest who died for us and rose from the grave, uh, firstborn from the dead. And he is our king, the ruler of all who is coming again. And this reference to the firstborn of the dead in verse 5 uh, is a reference back to Psalm 89, verse 27, where it says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, Jesus by his resurrection is the highest of the kings of the earth and therefore the rightful ruler of the kings of the earth and when satan tempted jesus with uh, at the beginning of his ministry remember what he tempted him with all the kingdoms of the earth and all the glory of the earth jesus rightfully wins all the glory of the earth and all the kingdoms of the earth through his victory in his death and resurrection Jesus wins the glory for himself through no no help of any other kings or lords or demons. Like Abraham of old, Jesus will give no glory to any other king, but he wants all the glory to go to God. Is he your prophet, priest, and king? You see, by nature, we try to do all these things by ourselves. We listen to ourselves, we determine our own right and wrong, and we try to be our own prophet. We also forgive ourselves for the sins we've committed as though the one that was the most offended was our own expectation of ourselves. And so we try to be our own priest and forgive ourselves. And as we have no other master but ourselves, we try to be our own king. Scotty Smith says uh, we want a masseur, not a master. We want a massage, not a message. We want God to be our messenger who runs errands for us rather than us being his messengers who declare his message as his ambassadors. And verse 6 tells us that Jesus is building a kingdom. And we're a kingdom not merely because God reigns over us, which is true, but also because we participate in the messianic reign of Christ. And as I thought about it, I would say that in this age, we are priests. But in the age to come, we are kings. Priests in this age, because we're to pray to God on behalf of men, and we're to preach to men on behalf of God. And we pray to God for the world, and we communicate the message of reconciliation. And in the age to come, we are kings who rule and reign with Christ. And the natural response to this is just like John. We see it right there. He bursts out in praise and glory Uh, of Jesus Christ, what we call a doxology. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I found something really fascinating about that from C.S. Lewis, who obviously is smarter than most people. You know, when you're not sure about something, there's certain people you can go to because you just know that they're smarter and figure a lot of this stuff out, and he's one of them. But C.S. Lewis is the one that showed me this isn't an occasional rare thing, but this is our natural response to all that's great and wonderful. He writes in one of his books, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical persons, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians. I had not noticed how the humblest, and at the same time most balanced minds, praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I love that phrase. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. He goes on I had not noticed either that, uh, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? And the psalmist is telling everyone to praise God, they're doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. And so in calling us to praise uh, Him, God is commanding us to complete our own enjoyment of Him, the most enjoyable person in the universe. And when you've begun to worship God, you've begun to live. Can you imagine a life that's censored of all praise? You're in love. Can you imagine being forbidden to say you're beautiful? Can you imagine knowing a hilarious joke and living in a world where no one has a sense of humor? Can you imagine going to a great concert and you're hearing amazing music, and everyone's just sitting there, and nobody applauds. After a while, it would be more than you could stand. And when God calls us to praise Him, He is inviting us out of that prison into freedom. You see, if you know Jesus, you can't praise Him enough. I read a simple verse this week, Psalm 106.2. It says, who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Dr. Dennis Johnson, in his commentary on revelations called The Triumph of the Lamb, says, Our interpretation of revelation must be driven by the difference God intends it to make in the life of his people. If we could explain every phrase, identify every allusion to the Old Testament scripture, or even to Greco-Roman society, trace every interconnection and illumine every mystery in this book, and yet we were silenced by the intimidation of public opinion, Terrorized by the prospect of suffering, enticed by affluent Western culture's promise of security, comfort, and pleasure, then we wouldn't have begun to understand the book of Revelation as God wants us to. He says the dragon's assault on the church comes in different forms and from different quarters and different times and places. In some parts of the world, the attack comes head on through the persecuting violence of hostile governments or neighbors. We see that all around the world. Early in uh, November, we're going to talk specifically about that. He says, in others, the the danger is insidious, a slow infection to numb the body's discernment of error or weaken its immune system. In others, the weapon is uh, is an appealing encouragement to enjoy the advantages of compromised conformity. But always, in every place and age, the church is under attack. And our only safety lies in seeing the ugly hostility of the enemy clearly and clinging fast to our champion and king, Jesus. You know, a few years ago, I haven't seen any lately, but a few years ago, uh, Sprite came up with what I thought was a clever uh, television ad. And it ended with this directive, obey your thirst. Obey your thirst. What are you thirsty for? Listen to Revelation 21, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Are you thirsty? Obey your thirst. Jesus says that he is the oasis at the end of your desert journey. Some are thirsty like that. Have you ever felt David's passion? We all know King David was a passionate guy, and sometimes that really helped him out, and sometimes not so much. But if you read his psalms that he wrote, there's tremendous passion in those Psalms. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There are some of us who want to thirst like that. We want that white hot intensity, that passion for the heart of God. We're thirsty for the living water that can satisfy. And the good news is that water is free. There's no hoops to jump through, no fees to pay. It wouldn't matter because you can never jump high enough for God's holiness. The Apostle Paul explained it this way, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And if that's true, then that means you can become a child of God. And the Apostle John, ever the evangelist, wrote in the first chapter of his gospel in John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And at times, it seems the Apostle John becomes overwhelmed with this thought that God has given us the opportunity to become his children. In his letters, 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. But there are others who are not thirsting after God. You see people around you and you're perplexed by their passion. Because you don't have that passion. And it seems that their heart is soft towards others, and your heart is hard. And you're full of your own sin. Listen once again to that Revelation 21 passage. The very next verse, as Jesus compares those who are thirsty with those who aren't. Revelation 21.80 says... But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And some people may say, Hey, you know, I don't practice sorcery. I haven't murdered anyone lately. And the reality is that those behaviors are merely symptoms of a heart that has sought refuge in sin instead of refuge in the Savior. The prophet Jeremiah said of this condition, in Jeremiah two, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You can't obey your thirst with empty water bottles. You can't obey your thirst with empty, broken cisterns. And the implied question in this judgment is, have you forsaken the only source of satisfaction? Have you been trying to satisfy yourself with the things of this world? Jesus had something to say about that too. Luke 9, And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Stop. That's the question of the hour. That may be the question of your life. Is he everything to you? Is he more than just a story? Is he your prophet, priest, and king? Or are you trying to be those things for yourself? It's either all about you or it's all about Jesus. It can't be both. Jesus won't allow it. Because not only is he the king, but he is the king you need. Think about that. You need to pray.